Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Evolution of Faith podcast. We want to let you know in this episode, every so often you will hear clicking and ticking in the audio. I promise you, you'll be able to listen to the conversation totally fine, but I was having audio issues from where I was recording as well as internet issues from where I was recording. I promise you, we will do the best we can to address this and make our experience even better as we move forward. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Here's today's episode. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is our what well, this is our fourth episode, uh, our third full episode, and we're excited about this conversation, but Man, many people have started listening and kind of, I would say, re-engaging because we had a podcast once before and some people have kind of followed us since. Uh, but I want to encourage everybody, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this, um, our whole goal is to have conversations for people who, man, maybe God's doing something in you and you're like, oh my goodness, what God is leading me to, some of the ideas, what he's doing in my heart and my mind uh, is looking a little different than maybe I expected as a kid or maybe how I was raised within Christianity. And we want to be we want to have those sort of conversations where we're continually pointing people back to the heart of Jesus. And man, the heart of Jesus, part of that big metanoia, that change of heart and mind uh, in English, that's repentance. Uh, sometimes it means that it leads us to things that uh, we never saw because God's transforming us. Um, and so we want to encourage you, if you would, um, if you've been watching this, if you've been listening to this, we want to encourage you, would you share these with your friends, whether it's YouTube, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, uh, we're all over all kind of the main platforms. Would you share this? And then I want to say if you're on a platform like iTunes that allows you to give a review, would you give a review to share some of your thoughts and maybe some things that uh, you love about this podcast? And that helps other people uh, hear us as well and see us as well. Like I said, we're excited about today's episode. My name is David. And my name is Zach. Yeah. So today, um, you know, we've had, we've had a, a shared doc together of different topics to different things we want to hit on this pod. And I think our topic for today is one that has probably set on the top since we've been doing podcasts together. Um, and it's, it's a, a highly relevant conversation. It, it feels like every few weeks, there's a, a new article, a new, you know, important person talking about this, considering this, uh, and so what we're going to look at today uh, is we're going to use a, a hot button word, which is, or I guess two words, Christian nationalism. Um, and I'll, I'll help define that here in just a moment. But really, we're, we're considering the ways in which Christians, people who follow after Jesus, what is our relationship to power? Like, how, how do we use power? To what extent are we called to influence policies and politics and um to what extent are we supposed to 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 join political parties and um you know to what extent is our our nation supposed to look like the certain morals I'm, i know we're on a podcast so i'm using air quotes the certain morals air quotes of christianity um that really came to head for me i think this was a last week um i was perusing twitter as i i do but not as much anymore 
Um, but I was perusing and I noticed that there was an article trending. Uh, it was trending on Twitter and I was seeing it pop up in my feed. Uh, and it was from Vice, uh, Vice News. And they titled it, Christian Nationalism Drove These People Out of Their Churches. And um, for me, it was a pretty, pretty sombering article to read as this is not just kind of a conceptual conversation about Christian nationalism, but also looking at like real life testimonies of people who mm. are witnessing this in their church and being turned off and then subsequently turned off to Christianity, uh, which is just like, man, that just breaks my heart. Like hearing these stories of people who were deeply committed to this church and then their church started to take a, in a different direction um, or maybe more exposing their real intentions uh, and that becoming a huge turnoff um, and being completely counter to the way of Jesus. And so um, that's something we, wanna, we wanted to look at today is I imagine that there are many people um, out there that you might know if you're a listener or maybe even yourself um, who's encountering this, who who might be finding themselves in church and hearing uh, hearing their pastor, the maybe their congregants say things that doesn't quite sound like uh, the spirit and heart of Jesus as it relates to influence and bringing the gospel about. So uh, I want to I want to kind of define this for us. This is my my working definition of Christian nationalism and Christian gaining of power, earthly power, really. Uh, and then we can kind of jump into our conversation, David. But um, this is the, the, the working definition I've got. So Christian nationalism is a combative form of promoting selected Christian morals. That's selected is key there. Wow. Uh, in the political sphere uh, and using political influence to uh, make those changes in our country. Uh, it's, it's working on an assumption that we in America live in a Christian nation, so it should have Christian morals, and by any means necessary, we will get to that end. Uh, and another, I mean, key also in there is combative. This is mm. a very um, combative attitude. You'll hear phrases that sounds like we're on a, I think in the, in the article in Vice, they said something about this idea. Ah. Christianity is in a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. Um, mm. It's a very combative language. So um, this might look like, uh, you know, promoting very specific political policies and very specific um, uh, political parties. I mean, if we're being honest, this is usually seen uh, on the right. You see mm. it far right uh, uses of, of Christianity. So, um, so we're seeing this and it's creating all sorts of, of division. We're seeing people leaving the church because they're, they're reading the words of Jesus and his actions. And then they're looking at their pastor and what they're saying is most important and what we need to do. And that this is the gospel and we're seeing people leave. Um, I know I, I have my own story of, of wrestling with this. Um, but David, I, I would just be curious to hear from you, your own experience with mm -hmm. Christians in power and your own wrestling with that, your own experience? Yeah, I, th I think that that's one of the things that I struggled through and probably in two different waves. Um, when I was 19, that's when I really started wrestling with faith and Christianity in general. But I started asking questions 
uh, because I, I mean, you know, uh, I don't know how much I'll go into this uh, in this episode, but I, I was born and raised in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs is, uh, they joke, the Vatican or the Mecca of evangelical Christianity. And there are, you have the Air Force Academy there, you have Peterson Air Force Base, you have NORAD, you have uh, Fort Carson, and uh, huge military presence. So there's there's this tie. I mean, I, I grew up in a little Christian fundamentalist church that would do July 4th celebrations for church services where we'd honor all the branches of military and we would uh, sing patriotic patriotic songs. And in that, I remember there was one individual in my church growing up who was highly involved in politics and he even ran for one season. And when he ran, a bunch of us from the church kind of got behind him. He would lead charges for picketing like abortion clinics and us kind of as a church going out and stepping out. And I started questioning a lot of kind of the blind, what I would, what I, what I would say was, or what I understood to be kind of a blind, uh, you know, getting behind a specific political agenda. Probably when I was 19, 20, I came out of my first year of Bible college and didn't really want to have anything to do with it. And then um, I would still get hired for certain things because I was in Colorado Springs and I was a worship leader for one of the bigger churches in town. And one of the things that I've told you before, Zach, that I I was hired for was uh, every year, they would have basic training at the Air Force Academy, and they would hire me as a worship leader for their chapel service their first week at basic training. And so a couple of years in a row, there's 800 to 1,000 cadets shoved in the Air Force Academy chapel. If ever you've seen the Air Force Academy chapel, it's got a really unique architecture to it. It's supposed to look like planes or jets, fighter jets, kind of standing on top of uh, – uh, as you could say, uh, facing straight upward, and they're all side by side. And then in the very back of the chapel is this cross, but it's not a cross. It's, it's swords that are, that are kind of laid on top of each other. And uh, I'd be leading worship, you know, in those days. It was, you know, uh, how great is our God? And some of those, uh, those tunes that I'd be leading in an entire room, they've just gotten yelled at for two, three days straight. They're weeping their eyes out because they just want to go home, but they can't and uh, let worship for them. Um, but it was, I would say, uh, 2015, 2016, that I kind of had my second uh, kind of evolutionary moment. And that was, uh, I was told to read Brian Zahn's Farewell to Mars. Mars is the Roman god of war. And uh, is basically a book he wrote to talk about his perspective of nonviolence. He holds a nonviolent ethic. Some would say pacifist, but there's really nothing passive about it when you look at the way of Jesus. Honestly, I got <laughs> I got three quarters of the way through, and I started reading about his trip to the Air Force Academy. And he started breaking apart all the architecture that I had never thought about. I had just been raised there. And that's where it hit me. I had kind of repentance moments where I realized like, oh man, like this is, this is legit. Like we want our God behind our, our, our military might. And so therefore our architecture and how we shape our beliefs 
it's kind of behind that. And that was one of those moments. I still remember I was driving from Santan Valley here in Arizona. And I was just like, like, I just, I, I just remember that feeling uh, of like, oh, oh man. And so that was kind of the moment where I realized how much of my childhood being raised in church has been to say that our God is behind our national movements mm. and our, our political movements and our military movements. And I kind of had to let that go and allow my mind to kind of reshape. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's really good. I, I, I think that's a great realization. I imagine there's a lot of people who've had similar stories of, I grew up assuming that the, the life of following Jesus was uh, to see a marriage between it and my nation, right? Like, yeah. uh, and I got to get behind the right guys and we'll make the right changes and we'll get back to being a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having those moments of being like, oh, is that is that what we're really supposed to be doing? I think the thing I I that really got me and I'll try to keep this somewhat short. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. So for me, it was 2016. Um, yeah. and that lead up to the election, I was registered as a Republican and I, you know, I was, I grew up that like, that was the only way to vote as a, as a Christian. That was it. Um, and I just remember that year thinking, this is the, the best guy we've got. <laughs> like this is, this is, uh, the best guy for us. Um, and I, I unregistered as, as a Republican that year and just put no party affiliation because I was like, this is, this is ugly on both sides. This is, I don't want to sell my soul or tie myself to one yeah. political party in the search of influencing my world for Christ. Um, I feel, I feel more free to, to pick and choose if you will. But I think the thing that really got me was, um, this feeling of the ends justify the means. Mm. Um, and I think that to me, it's one of the biggest concerns with Christian nationalism is this kind of bulldozer mentality of yeah. we want, like, there's a piece that I feel like very empathetic towards, particularly because I, I grew up believing this, you know, and, and seeing a great marriage between my faith in the USA, I mean, we sang the the songs of the branches of the military for Fourth of July weekend at my church, mm-hmm. and we sang yeah. "God Bless America." And um, now I look back, and it's hard to imagine the early church doing that with Rome, you know. And yeah, um, but for me, it was it was just thinking about this mentality of I, I get the heart of wanting to make changes in our nation. There's something unique about us as as Americans or even in the West where most of our systems are democratic, where I have a voting power or Paul in his day, the new Testament church, they didn't, they didn't quite have that. Yeah. Which is why sometimes this can be so hard to discuss because we don't have passages that are directly aimed at us in our situation here, where we do have a little bit more power, a little bit more say in our world. Um, and so for me, I, I was thinking about, um, yeah, the way in which we we lift up ugly things in hopes mm-hmm. that maybe a little thing of hope and good thing will come out in our nation um and that we'll just kind of we'll sell our soul out for yeah for a guy we'll sell our soul out for a policy a politician a party in hopes that you know insert vague christian moral will be implemented in our in our nation and that's that's why i use the word 
in, in my definition, selected mm -hmm. Christian morals, because with Christian nationalism and this bulldozer mentality, you don't see turning the other cheek, loving your neighbor, you know, yeah. uh, you see kind of broad morals of, of Christianity in it. We see this both in the political world with the church, but I think we see this in the church in general. Uh, you know, when we want to get things done, we want to grow our churches. It's kind of, oh, we'll do whatever means necessary. I mean, I think about all the the stressful, as I've worked in churches, I think of all the stressful Easter's and Christmases and the whole, well, it's all worth it if one person, you know, <laughs> comes to know Jesus. Um, but I think that you know, I I don't I don't know how much it would be helpful to fully get into it, but I think that there is a sense of rugged individualism um, and celebration of of kind of a violent uh, aggression, almost a false sense of masculinity and aggression that plays mm -hmm. into what we celebrate and the how we get things done. And it's kind of seeped into the church. Uh, Kristen Dumay, I'm halfway through her book, Jesus and John Wayne. And that's pretty much just her whole point. And then she kind of walks through American Christian history through that. Um, Randall Balmer is another really good thinker. He wrote the book, The Making of Evangelicalism. And then there's some things he's unpacked. Um, I think, uh, let me see if I could find... Uh, yeah, so Bad Faith is his most recent uh, book, where in the making of evangelicalism, that he kind of sets up a couple pillars that have brought us to evangelical Christianity in America where we're at. So like the the shift of uh, from first Great Awakening to the second Great Awakening, how they did evangelism, uh, eschatological shift, so post-millennialism versus pre-millennialism, that whole shift. And then kind of then you have kind of the Jesus movement and uh, there's this Christian subculture that then has fed into the rise of the religious right. Now, what he did in bad faith, um, and I, I haven't read it, but I've I've heard a lot of interviews with him. What he did was he actually broke down, because people asked him to, the rise of the religious right, where he basically he basically talks about how in the South. Christian schools, there was segregation that they wanted to hold in the, the 70s and 80s. Uh, and so what they did was they got behind, uh, honestly, abortion as the topic to kind of get justice-minded, good justice-minded Christians behind um, in order for them to have their religious rights for nonprofit so that they can keep their segregated schools. And he breaks that that whole thing down. I mean, you have Jerry Falwell, just to name a name in there, as one of the ones who wanted to keep segregation in the schools. And so it was that desire for religious rights and nonprofit status rights uh, for segregated schools that got them kind of behind uh kind of uh, some of these ways there's a lot of kind of the pulling the wool over good good hearted christ followers that want to get behind justice topics but they're like let's let's ride this train so that we could get our way back behind it and so there's a lot of that in kind of the rise of the religious right um brad jerzak who is a eastern orthodox canadian that helps run a school up there by the name of saint andrews he has an entire program where he teaches uh justice reconciliation and one of the things that he he kind of calls his his movement as he looks at the way of jesus uh he calls it political theology 
that political theology is us taking the way of Jesus and attempting to just figure out, okay, like, what does this mean to live faithfully? And there's a couple things that he sets up where he talks about, and you talked about this, the early church. Uh, The early church kind of had five different values that they held to, and I would say some of them are far right would be like, yeah, and hate hate the other ones. And then our far left would be like, yeah, and hate the other ones. But here's, mm-hmm. here's what he lays out. They, they were anti-abortion, which was a practice that then they're anti-abortion and anti-infant exposure. If you're familiar, if you didn't want a baby, you just left it outside your door. And that was a practice. And so Christ's followers were anti-abortion, but they would also go and pick up these babies and take them in and, and adopt them. Uh, they were committed to the poor. Uh, they had a strict sexual ethic. Um, they were committed to immigrant care, and they were committed to Christ-centered nonviolence. So those are the five ones. Um, and so if you look uh, at kind of our a bipartisan way of thinking, uh, one side seems to be anti-abortion and, and a strict sexual ethic, but maybe doesn't always like taking care of immigrants the way maybe <laughs> some Christ followers would encourage them to, or committed to yeah. taking care of the poor in some of the same ways, or even committed to nonviolence. And that's some of the stuff we're talking about. But the other side, you know, they'd be committed to nonviolence, committed to immigrant care, committed to taking care of the poor. But they might not like the anti-abortion or the strict sexual ethics. And so, when we look at the early church and how they embodied what they believed the way of Jesus was, it would probably for us challenge both sides. <laughs> and I think that yeah. there's a lot we could learn. I don't think we look at the early church enough. Uh, we just kind of, sometimes I think we think that this whole Christian uh, thing we kind of invented here in America. And so we kind of hold the patent to it. Uh, but I think there's a lot we can learn from the early church. One last thing about that, and, and, and I'll be done. When we look at the early church, I, the key for us, again, is to be transformed by the way of Jesus. And then as he transforms us, that's the, the good news working in us, um, we embody the way of Jesus. And the, what, what people see, are not only are the, the works and the way of Jesus, but it's also the fruit, the love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. And so sometimes when we look at the leaders or we look at the ways of getting behind the leaders in our, on our day and age, first of all, do those leaders embody the fruit? And in the way in which I jump on, am I embodying the fruit? Those are questions that we need to ask. And when we look at the early church uh, up into the 200s, I would say that Christianity was a, such a minority, it was a persecuted minority, that uh, what studies tell us is that there was one Christian for every like 230-some pagans. I mean, it was a minority. It was a persecuted minority. And they're living like Jesus. They're loving like Jesus. They're, they're, uh, they're you know, living these values I talked about, anti-abortion. They're committed to the sick and the poor and the needy. So much so that there were two different epidemics that popped up in those time periods, two different plagues. That, now, we don't fully know what they were. That could be smallpox. Uh, but after the second plague, um, the Christians stuck around uh, during the plagues. They stuck around to take care of the people who were dying and sick from the plagues while their families all fled for the hills. The Christians are like, no, we want to take care of, we want to ease the pain of the people dying. 
And they were so effective that, that by the end of the second plague, they went from one Christian every 230-some pagans mm. to one Christian every four pagans. Wow. They were that effective. And it had nothing to do with them jumping on political power. It had everything to do with them showing the love of Jesus to the people who were in need. So, yeah. That's really good. I mean, like, yeah, as you said, the, the history of, of Christianity is so important in this conversation. And I think we could do a whole pot on that, too, because I think that's something we miss out on. And um, there's a whole lesson there with Constantine that we don't have time to get into today, but um, is a great example of when nationalism and the marriage of Christianity and earthly powers goes wrong. Well, I think if, if I could speak to that, though, some of the ethics had to shift. Um, and you have Augustine, who, I mean, he, he was a first, he, Augustine's the one that changed. And I, I want to go back into it because this is my personal ethic and conviction. I don't judge people who don't have the same one. But a personal ethic, when I, because I look at the early church, I am a nonviolence guy. You have Tertullian saying things like, you know, when, when Jesus disarmed Peter, Peter, he disarmed the swords of all Christians, you know. Um, yeah. But when when Christianity not only became legal to practice, but after Constantine, it became the dominant religion. Um, Augustine, Augustine, that's where he comes up with just war theory. They had to find ways to justify the Christian faith behind the, the, the empire. And so, I, I mean, just speaking to that, that's one of the ones where you got the things that are in conflict, you got to find ways to kind of ease that conflict. And that's, that's yeah. the tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. And your mention of Tertullian, I mean, he's a great guy to study too in this conversation <laughs> is uh, what's his, uh, uh, shall we carry a flag? No, yep. but his arrival to Christ. It's a, a lot, yep. to, lot to think on. Well, I think um, something you mentioned there at the end uh, with the early church and their response to uh, these pandemics and their response to taking in and living out the life of Christ, you know, it, it kind of brings me into this. Okay. If followers of Jesus are called not to grasp for early earthly power, not to ride the coattails of, of people who, who are not, you know, follower displaying the life of Christ, but are, um, but maybe they believe in one little thing that we believe in. So I'll ride with them and, um, and very combative, uh, exercises to, to get our morals in. It makes me think of like, if the gospel is producing new life in us so that we produce fruit, right. The, the fruit of Christ, um, Christian nationalism is almost trying to take those pieces of fruit and take them onto a dead tree and say like, look, we're going to change these morals and these ethics in our country and that'll produce the gospel it's yeah. that's the wrong way right um one of the, the passage that i've been uh thinking on a lot about um is jesus conversation with Pilate, and uh mm. this is john 18 and he's having this whole thing and and pilots you know trying to get him to, to talk about how he's this king um and uh where is, it, where is this? Now I've lost my, my passage here. <laughs> ah, okay. So, yeah, so Jesus says this uh, as a response to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. And I, there's so much packed into what Jesus is saying there. Because what, what I think he is saying is, 
is twofold, right? On, on one instance, he is saying, look, the people who follow me, they're not fighting, right? They're, it goes with Paul, right? In Ephesians, our, our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? Um, and here's Jesus saying, like, the people who follow me are not here to fight. Um, and the other side of that is to say that there's, there's a way to follow Jesus that brings about victory and brings about power. Because this is the moment Jesus is about to go to the cross and defeat mm. sin, defeat death, you know, rise three days later and bring new life. Like Jesus is victorious and there is power found in Jesus. But getting to that moment, getting, getting there was not through the means of fighting, not through the means of combating and, and um, doing things by earthly power, right? Jesus certainly could have stepped in and just have been a bigger, mm-hmm. badder Caesar, right? He could have taken over Rome. And that's what many of his contemporaries expected of him as the Messiah. And I think that's what's troubling some is that we look at Jesus in his life and we fall into this pitfall of we see earthly power around us and it feels Mm -hmm. like it's the best tool to go about following Jesus and the best tool to bring about the gospel. And Jesus himself never did that. I mean, he his the way he got to ultimate solution for everything, going to the cross and dying and raising again was was self-sacrifice was this way of life that he lived in the gospels that is so counter. It's so hard. When Jesus said, this is a difficult life to follow. We got to, we got to pick up our cross. We got to die. Um, there's a lot of weakness in that. And there's a lot of self-sacrifice and through that is revealing the power of Jesus. So it's not to say that Christians don't have power, um, but our power looks way different. Our influence looks much different than jumping on a political bandwagon than um, than fighting, than yeah. doing violent acts to, you know, produce some sort of uh, effect. It's, 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 it's very different. And, and Jesus is the, the point to all that. Um, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts? We're wrapping yeah. up here out of time, but. Yeah, I, I actually, um, there's a lot we could dig into. We could even make a second half of this or go extend. Yeah. Um, so the the Matthew the Matthew passage around Jesus's crucifixion, um, Barabbas. I think it's Matthew twenty seven, like mm. um, halfway through. I think it's fifteen through eighteen. You know, it, it sets up Barabbas, and it says Barabbas was in jail before because he was basically uh, accused of murder in a violent insurrection. <laughs> And uh, I think about, man, we just lived through uh, insurrection. (laughs) And Barabbas represents a group. Now, there were multiple groups of people. There were the zealots. uh, There were Galileans as a whole believed that they, you know, the Messiah would come to them first and then, you know, build up their army and they'd go fight, you know. And so there were all these mindsets. And and we see in the Gospels, especially Luke, Luke is, Jesus is pushing, you know, even when they talk about this whole violent means of getting things done, he's like, do you think, you, you know, do you think the sins of the Galileans are anything worse uh, you know in luke 13 he says unless you repent you too will also perish and then luke luke after the you know the zealots are waving palm branches saying you know uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord in luke 19 
he <laughs> what does he do he weeps over the city he's like i wish you would have known what have brought you peace um but in matthew 27 it's fascinating because they offer barabbas and say you can either have jesus or barabbas and they want barabbas freed as opposed to jesus yeah. And I think nowadays we want Barabbas instead of Jesus. Mm. It's like Jesus isn't good enough. And it's fascinating because in the, the passage, you, you mentioned the John 19, which is, you know, the, the John's gospel account. After he sends Jesus to be crucified, you know, they say, we have no other king but Caesar. Jesus wasn't good enough for them. And I, I want to read to you, this is, this this is from Brian Zahn's book, Postcards from Babylon, uh, The Church in American Exile. He quotes here Robert Jeffress, who, if you know him, he is the, he's one of the spiritual advisors or was to Donald Trump uh, and has First Baptist Church in Dallas. He's the pastor there. Here's something that Robert said when talking about the future president. This was back April of 2016. He says this. When I'm looking for a leader who's going to sit across nego the negotiating table from the nuclear Iran or who's going to be intent on destroying ISIS, I could care less about the leader's temperament or his tone or his vocabulary. Frankly, I want the meanest, toughest son of a gun I could find. And I think that's the feeling of a lot of evangelicals. So what he's saying here, and Brian, Brian says it, that's Barabbas. Barabbas was a national hero, a violent revolutionary willing to kill in the name of freedom. Uh, when you say, I want the meanest, toughest son of a gun I can find, be careful, because they'll give us Barabbas. Mm. And, uh, and I think that, that says a lot about our, our mindset of what we seek power. Uh, I mean, you know, I could keep walking through this James 3, right, where there's selfish ambition, envy, uh, all these things that we see. We, man, this is how we're going to get things done pragmatically. It says you find all evil practices. Yeah. But then it lays out here, I'll, I'll pull it up here. Then it lays out, it says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven. And so this is kind of his way of, of talking about spiritual fruit, right? The fruit of the spirit. And he says, then is peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers. I love this. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Mm. And it's the same same conversation in Revelation, man. You you have, you know, they're waiting for, you know, without us unpacking it, they're waiting for the Lion of Judah, ah, you know, to show up. All of a sudden this puny little slain lamb shows up and it's the slain lamb that takes on and is victorious through the entire apocalypse yeah. of John. Uh, it's you know, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, even being willing to be put to death that we're victorious. Uh, and then it's this dragon, you know, that's the Satan that gives power to the beasts in the next chapter. And those beasts look like that same, you know, uh, satanic wisdom that James three talks about spewing lies and envy and, and then violence, right? Yeah, and uh, it says that this puny little slain lamb is what's victorious. 
and we'll overcome by the blood of the lamb. So it's a self-sacrifice that we see embodied in Jesus that if we take that on, that's where the power is. But we, we, yeah. we just, we really struggle seeing that and understanding that. Yeah. 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 We could do a whole episode on revelation five. I know you and I love, love chatting on that. Yeah. Yeah. The lion doesn't show up and there's, they're looking for a big, like, that's the thing, right? Going a back beast, to that quote. A beast to a take on the beast. beast. Yeah. Yeah. Instead it's a lamb. Yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, maybe we will have to do a part two on this, but, uh, you know, we're, we're coming close to the end here. So, um, yeah, David, maybe give, uh, let us know how else we can continue this conversation and, yeah. uh, talk about the podcast. Again, if you would like and share this episode and uh, and leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends, and we'll have more episodes like this as we continue to figure out, man, what does it mean to faithfully follow Jesus as Jesus does transformation in us where our faith might look a little different as we grow than it once did. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you again. See you next time.